Interior. Night. Recording studio. Two redheads begin pre-show warm-ups. Red leather, yellow leather, red leather, yellow leather. Jack, write that you gargle your water or something. Jack gargles some water. And then put that we say, welcome to Script Shop. Who? Me or you? Mm, you say it. Welcome to Script Shop. N- no, but like, really, say it. Like, right now. Like, right now. Let's go for it. Welcome to Scrimshaw. No, Jack. Top. <laughs> Omaha. No, Jack. Welcome to Script Shop. Hi, home, everybody. Hey, it's your, it's your old pal Jack from Script Shop, and he's here with his good friend Allison. Mm, if I could do a Miss Piggy voice right now, I totally would. Oh, that would be good. I know, but I can't. I'm not even going to try it. I have to. I have to prepare myself as an actor, That's right. you and then lay into the character. Get into the headspace of the felt pig puppet. <laughs> I, I yes, get it. you know those little puppets we have at home that Olive loves so much. Yes, she loves those puppets. It's, I know it's gross. It's, it, it's really. Uh, my mom did a lot of puppet stuff in her time. Oh. She was a preschool teacher, and like it's really it really the, the the way a kid will react to a puppet that that somebody's controlling is it, it's really magical. Without really? like trying to use a word that's too strong, like that's a real apt way to describe the way yes. kids react to puppets. It's just magic. Well, maybe we'll get more puppets then because she really loves the puppets that we have yeah. at home. Hi, everybody. This is our podcast called Script Shop, where we talk to screenwriters about their scripts. And why they wrote them and what they are about and then why they are the only person in the whole wide world who could have possibly written that script. We love talking to our writers and figuring out what makes them tick and how magical it is for them to talk to puppets maybe too we've been doing this for almost 100 episodes now yes we're so excited we're coming up our 100th episode is on september 4th i just plotted it out oh today. boy well we're I gonna know. have to cut this out. something's gonna happen we're gonna it's you, gonna you, mess up you just cursed us Whoa, cursed. <laughs> cursed cursed podcast <laughs> that's our next show anyway we've been, doing, we've been doing the show for a while and i just wanted to say glad to be a part of it thank Absolutely. you for listening and, uh, yes yeah. thank you so much um, if you're excited about the show and you love what we do, you can always go on to Patreon.com and send some Roonies or Reenies our way. We appreciate any donations that come in our general direction. And if you have a, a script that you've written, you can uh, send us that uh, by going on to scriptshopshow.com slash submit. We would, we'd love to read your work and uh, try to figure out a cool time to have you on. That's right. And don't forget that if you tag it in any way with the phrase that pays, yes. hot burrito. Just as an interruption, Jack, Yes. what do you think is the average amount of money that you spend at Taco Bell? Oh, this is a good question. Well, here, I'm a big fan of the five-buck box. Okay, okay. I, I sort of subscribe to literally whatever they have in the five-buck box. I'm Sweet. probably going to get it. How does that work? You just pay $5 and they give you a box of leftover food. <laughs> they, well, yeah. Welcome to... I mean, welcome to any fast food joint you can make the argument for. They've got there are certain things that they're looking to promote. So like if there's some new you know some new hotness item that they're they're yes. trying to throw out there, they'll put that into some box with like a taco, maybe a thing of chips and cheese, and then like some cinnamon twist, and you get a drink. It seems like it's a good deal. There's a there's a marketing psychology behind this where there's a lot of fast food joints now that have like these five dollar meal, whether it's in a bag or whether yeah. it's in a box or whatever. It's different from the value meal. This is like its own little self contained thing because psychologically. When you hear five bucks, you think that that's a good value for what you're going to get in return. And I, mm. I love the Taco Bell five buck box. Mm-hmm. I wonder if I had anything else I could change the price on to five dollars to sell more of. That's something to think about. Maybe tickets to the Independent Film Festival, which actually are ten dollars per single screening. 
Yeah, don't do that. We've, you're, that's, <laughs> it's going the wrong Cross direction. Cross the lines now. So welcome back to Script Shop. Today we have on the show Colin Dale and we his short screenplay, Not Even a Gravestone. This is a 22-page hidden ancestry, modern-day Western. That, I'm using that phrase mm. very loosely because yeah. it's just got these tones to it, but we need to really talk to Colin about that. Family issues, With, sins of the father. Yes, I love it, brothels. With 80s details and sexed undertones. Oh. It's a big one. Yeah. Sex. It's like it's not sexed up. There's nothing super sexual intent, you know, there's not sexual tensions, but it is a sexed script because it takes place in a brothel. Yeah, there's there it is a when you say sexed meaning S E X E D. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I not sexed That's like the I was, texting. I was confused for a second. <gasps> I see. Language. <laughs> it's oh fun my thing. god. Uh, also, if you want to, if you're on the internet, which you're on the podcast right now, so I don't know how else you're listening <laughs> you to this. You live and breathe. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, you can connect with us on uh, Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter. Look up Script Shop Show on any of those websites and uh, be friends with us. Follow us. We would, uh, we'd really appreciate that, too. And uh, now that we've hit all of the things that I think we're supposed to hit, mm-hmm. we should probably get Colin on because he's been uh, he's been waiting. He said he sort of locked himself in his room and he's not doing anything else <laughs> for the duration of the podcast. <laughs> so, Colin, thank you for all of your your attention. That's uh, that's very kind. One hundred percent of it. Appreciate it. Yeah. No. No problem. I'm. Uh, yeah. I'm, I like. I mean, lock. I think the locked in the room thing sounds a little scarier than it is. I'm actually, I'm actually enjoying myself. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Great. He's resting. Who yeah, amongst us has? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, good, going. Jack. Go back to the script shop show. Keep right on going. So uh, the most important question, let's just get it right out of the way, is how much money do you usually spend at Taco Bell? That's a great question. Uh, it's funny, you guys. I was like literally thinking. I was like, because I know that's a big obsession on the show. Um, mm. I- I've actually never purchased a Taco Bell item ever. Wow. So like, I, know, I know, I know, I know. So um, I know that's like supremely disappointing. No, 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 no. I'm impressed. It's not even a shame yeah. thing. It's, it's really just surprising. Well, it is. And I, again, I'm impressed because it's like, how could you not? You know, that's just kind of right, the world right. I live in. So tell us yeah. more about this Vito burrito. And also tell us where in Romania you're calling us from. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, like, well, the thing is, like, I so I'm I, I'm in L.A. I live in L.A. now. Um, and I feel like the thing about LA is like, I'm not, I'm not anti-Mexican food in any way. Mm -hmm. I like Mexican food, but the thing is like in LA, you can just kind of go to any random kind of taco stand on the street and pay like five bucks and get like really delicious Mexican food. So I've never felt, I feel like I've never felt the need to like go to Taco Bell. I don't know. That's just my, that's my stance. It's not, you know, it's not a moralist stance or anything, but yeah, yeah. just based on convenience. And, and right, quality. Exactly. Yeah, sure. I yeah. get that. I get that. Mm, what yeah. What so. do you normally eat on road trips? Um, that's such a good question. Like, uh, pizza usually. Ah, and really? Like, okay. Bagels. Bagels is a big one because, like, right. bagels you can just hold it in your right hand and like steer with the left mm-hmm. and eat the bagel as you're. And so, like, I'm, a, I'm a, I usually get cream cheese on my shirt and, and whatnot, yes. which is always frustrating. But, but no, like a bagel is always a good road trip food for me at least yeah and of course as we all know if you combine those two things when you've got pizza on a bagel you can eat pizza anytime (laughs) yes there's also right there's crossover there we all know that i wish we would get money for all the promo work-ins we give to all the companies and we're working on it (laughs) (laughs) one day we're trying so you live in la now have you have you grown up in la well no i'm from i'm actually from boston massachusetts well not not boston exactly i went to I went to high school uh, in the city of Boston. So I went to Boston College High School in Dorchester. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's an all-boys private school. I grew up on what's called the South Shore, um, 
and it's the South Shore of Boston. So I, I grew up in a town called Hingham, Massachusetts. Um, and it's actually funny. I, you guys had someone on who was from New Bedford, which is funny because I have a actually um, my family has like a little beach cottage in Mattapoisett, which is like right next door to New Bedford. So um, I thought that was interesting. But anyway, so I go to you. Maybe you know now. him. Maybe you know that guy, though. I don't think. No, I looked him up. Nick, right? Nick. Tan, what was it? Do you remember? Harrison? Was it? Nick. Now no, I'm going to have to figure I'll, this I'll out. Too. Up again. But anyway, um, yeah, so I go to USC now. I'm actually a rising senior at USC. So I moved. So I, you know, quote unquote, moved out to L.A. three years ago. Um, but, you know, I just go to school here. But now I'm like actually kind of settling in more. So I'm actually here for the whole summer, which is the first time ever that mm-hmm. I've been in L.A. for the summer. So, um, no, I'm not a, I'm not an Angelino. I'm not a native Los Angeles <laughs> well, that's, But that's a big move, right? Going from Boston to L.A. It's yeah, kind of hard. To, I mean, short of going to Hawaii, it's hard to go any further and stay in the U.S., right? Yeah. It's crazy. It was. It, it took a lot of adjustment. Like, like it was just – it basically took – I always tell people it took basically a month for me to, like, just adjust to being on different soil, mm-hmm. you know? And, and so that was – and I was open to that challenge, but it was, it was difficult. And, and no one really – no one that I knew too well was kind of coming out here – with the exception of uh, one of one guy that I grew up with, but he's in San Diego. So I was really, you know, I was really on my own and it was just interesting. It was, it was, it was kind of, it was, it was tough. Um, but I've, I've, I'm like now super comfortable here and I finally feel at home, but it takes a while. It takes, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. So it was a big move. Yeah. And you moved out there specifically for some sort of film opportunity. Well, so I, to go to USC, I'm a student. Gotcha. Okay. Um, I'm a student still. So yeah, it was just, it was, it was I actually, I didn't even think I would get into, um, USC, but, uh, I did. And then I was like, had an epiphany and I was like, okay, I think that's where I'm going to go to school. And that's where I am now. So I'm, I'm going to be, uh, yeah, I'm going to be a senior this year and, and finish up my college career. But, um, that's awesome. Yeah. But I, I think, yeah. To answer the answer to that your question though is definitely yes because yeah. I, I I want to stay here long term and, and try to work in the film industry so mm-hmm. yeah yep. this may seem like a, a non sequitur but <laughs> welcome to script yeah, shop the show. <laughs> yeah. what did what did the application process look like to get into USC um oh my gosh it was so long it feels so long ago now but um <laughs> it was they have basically like. Okay, so it, it's pretty – they have a lot of essays, and all the essays are – like it's very specific to your school. So like USC has like the School of Journalism, the film school, the business school. You're, you're applying – you're not applying to USC generally. You're applying to a specific school. And so the funny thing is I applied to the journalism school actually hmm. um, because my my parent, me and my parents kind of hadn't come to a consensus on – um, whether film school was something they actually wanted me to kind of apply for mm-hmm. uh, sure. and do. So, so I went to, I applied to the journalism school and I got into the journalism school at USC. So it's a lot of like for the journalism school, it's a lot of essays and it's a lot of kind of like testing your, it seems like it's testing your writing skills, obviously, but testing like your awareness of things, basically. Like, it's like, do you actually un- do watch the news? What, what are your yeah. opinions on the state of the news? What are, what are your opinions on the media landscape now? So it's like it, it, basically like I feel like it's it, part of it is is I think what they're looking for is like, you know, uh, are you someone who's genuinely passionate about this thing that you're you claim to be passionate about? Um, and I think I had I had enough opinions. The thing is, I wanted so badly to be in the film school, but I had enough opinions on all the things that they were kind of pressing me on that I felt like it worked out, obviously, because I got in. 
Yeah. Um, but then there was like an interview process. So I was able to interview cause they did like, they do interviews locally. Um, yeah, so it was, it was kind of, it was just a lot of writing. And, and so writing has always been something that I felt comfortable doing. And so like, I think it helped me out in, in that case as well. So then what is the transition going from J school into something that's more film related? Once you get, do you do that once you get out to USC? Yeah. So like I have that, what's funny is I kind of had that plan embedded in my head already. Like literally when this I step on This is your work around from like, your parents. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, yeah. So my dad and I eventually, after my first year, we had kind of a sit down conversation and we were like, you know, he was like, okay, you can do this if this is really what you want to do. Cause he could see that I was serious about it. Um, and so, you know, yeah, there's a transfer process. You basically have to go through the full, the full film school application process with the exception of like SAT scores. Okay. Um, so it's, it's a pretty, it's a, it's it's a process. It, it it is a process with a capital P. Um, you're just doing the application process that any high school kid would do to get into the film school, except you're already a USC student. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are a few things that they omit. But um, yeah, yeah, it was. But but it was totally worth it. I was so much happier once I was in the film school. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Anyway, do you feel like there were things that you learned in your brief time of doing the journalism track that have come into play now in your work doing uh, film stuff? Yeah. You know what I think I was, someone asked me that exact question the other day. Oh. I forget who, but, but <laughs> yeah, like I think it's, I think, <laughs> Lame. I think, um, <laughs> um, non-original think, Jack Crumley. Darn it, that person sounds really smart. <laughs> <laughs> they, they are. They were very, very smart. So, uh, rest assured. Um, I think it's like validity and, and fact checking and research. I think it's hmm. like, because the, the, the journalism program to give the kids who are in that program credit, like it's really hard at USC it's, it's a very, you have to be very, very involved outside of the classroom. And, and, you know, you have to be working in, they have a massive student newsroom. You have to be working in there all the time. Um, and you have to be going out and really telling stories, you know what I mean? In a big, what's already a big media landscape. So if you're not doing your research and you're not getting things right in the stuff you're writing, you get exposed. It's, it's pretty, it's very rigorous. And like, so I think accountability in terms of the way you, the information you present, I think was, was what I got out of it. And also just kind of hmm. having the willingness to like sit down and do a ton of research before you really put pen to paper. Do you think that um, helps you write really tight stories? Yeah, totally. Yeah. So it was, you know what I mean? Like, so I, I didn't, um, as much as I wanted to be in the film school during those two semesters, three semesters that I was there, um, it totally helped me as a storyteller, I think, um, to, you know, to make light out of it. Um, because yeah, it does, it does help you tell tighter stories. Uh, cause you have to also in the media landscape now, it's crazy. Cause you have to grab people's attention and, and yeah. with, with like right away, you know what I mean? People aren't going to sit down and read, uh, 3000 word op-eds all the time, you know? Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, when did you start turning your attention to screenwriting in particular? So I, that's a good, so I've always been into film. <laughs> that, you think. hear him? That's a yeah, good I question. Know, I know. I heard it. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, yeah, I've, I've been into filmmaking since I was a little kid. Like I used to run around, um, my neighborhood with a little VHS camcorder, um, back when those things actually existed and they were sold. Um, and so me and my friends in the neighborhood would like make these little movies. Um, and it was not, it was, it was just something that we did. And I I can never remember like why we did it. We just did it because we thought it was fun. Um, and then when I, entered middle school, I kind of just forgot all about it. I kind of just forgot about filmmaking entirely. I don't know why. And I started experimenting with, um, kind of poetry and, and, um, and prose and stuff. So I'd write short stories, I'd write poems and, 
Um, I would, I would even go on like writing forums and post my, the stuff that I was writing in these kind of writing forums, these very kind of archaic, um, almost like Reddit style websites. I think one of them was literally called writing.com. I think, <laughs> um, you're putting like, you're putting, and, you're putting creepy pasta out there or what? No, 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 nothing like that. No, 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 not, not in that vein. No, no, I wouldn't, I don't want to poison kids with like scary, you know, boogeyman stories. Yeah, Shrek it was that kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, yeah. So then I eventually, I took a film class sophomore year and it was, it totally changed everything. Cause I was like, okay, I can take this thing that I used to do, which was filmmaking. And then I can take my love for just writing and I can combine them. And then I kind of never looked back. I just started writing strictly screenplays. Um, and I've written, I don't know how many short screenplays since then, but I've, I've recently finished my first feature screenplay. Yay. Um, which I'm very, which I'm very happy with, uh, actually, like as my first screenplay. But um, yeah, so it, it, I, it was basically sophomore year is, is to short answer um, is when I just started like kind of just really focusing on just screenwriting. Um, what do you yeah. think is the difference between writing shorts and a feature length screenplay? I think I, I mean, it's like I think it's just I think it just it's stamina. Honestly, I think I really think that's pretty much it. I think like because I also I like to start with characters first. That's kind of my approach is I go from like a character – I start with characters and then kind of focus on story afterwards. So I think the hardest part is like do you have enough story to actually tell a feature length, you know what I mean, script. I think like – and I think the reality is like for me, I found that I had always – even when I was writing short scripts, characters – the characters were so important. And like knowing every single thing, knowing the characters like the back of my hand was so important to me. And so that just kind of carried me through this first screenplay that I've written, a feature screenplay. Because it's just like the characters will kind of tell you what they want to do if you know them well enough. You know, it's kind of that weird ethereal idea, I guess. Um, you know, that like the characters will tell you what they want to say mm-hmm. and where they want to go and all that stuff. And so it's just kind of it's really stamina and like tr- also treating. I felt like it was I had to start treating writing like a bowel movement is the way I put it. Like hmm. it's something it's something you have to do every day, whether you like it or not. <laughs> You know, whether, yeah, sure. whether, whether it feels good or not. Well, take some more fiber. Yeah, exactly. More fiber. It's very, very important. Yeah. So not yes. even a gravestone. Is this like a, a recent screenplay for you? Is it one that you wrote a while ago? How are you feeling about it now? So I wrote it last year. So I wrote it when I was, I'm 21 now going on 22. I'm going to be 22 in, on July 31st. So I wrote it when I was 20. So I wrote it like winter of, yeah, winter of, of last year. Um, and yeah, it, it's, so it's, it's actually already, I've already made it as a film actually. It's already a short film that yeah. I've uh, written, wow. I've directed myself. Um, I directed it with the help of some really, really talented people in Massachusetts um, who like a my cinematographer Ben Grant and um, a girl named Anna Remus who has helped me produce it. So like it was something I wrote, yeah, about a year and a half ago, I guess. Um, and it's it's completed as a film. Um, yeah, so it's it's kind of I guess it's old, so to speak, but not. I'm still very proud of it and very. It's something I think about a lot, and it's kind of I, I. It was the first screenplay where I that I felt really really short screenplay that I felt really confident in. Um, and so I still feel that way. I still feel when I kind of read it back, I'm I'm still proud of it for and, sure. And it was something that you came up with outside of the confines of like a school assignment or anything. 
Yes, exactly. Yeah, it was it was a it was a personal, totally a personal project. Yeah. Where did it start from? Like, what inspired this? I'm obsessed with I, I'm obsessed with um, the idea of running away, like the character, like the idea of characters running away hmm. uh, from home. I just something I've always been obsessed with, and so I, I had I knew, and I'm also like I'm very very close with my brother, um, and so I knew I I knew that I wanted to tell a story about uh, two brothers. Um, and I knew that one of them would, would run away for some reason and then that the other brother would have to go and, and kind of find the brother who had run away. Um, and I'm obsessed with the woods. Um, okay. and so I, I, I knew that I knew the kind of core elements and then I started to develop the story, but the story was very, very like skeletal when, as I was developing it and, and, and I was like, it just didn't feel right. It didn't feel like something I could just slap together yet. And I was actually at my ex-girlfriend's house, um, and they had an original Fabian Perez painting. Fabian Perez is a uh, he's a he's still alive. He's a he's a current um, living painter. Um, he paints these beautiful. Um, I don't even know. Like it, you have to just kind of look him up and to, to see what I'm talking about. Beautiful portraits of. He actually grew up in a brothel. Um, ah, okay. Oh, yeah. I'm seeing these a lot of these pictures of like a woman sitting with a man smoking at a table, yes. and yeah, okay. Yes, very kind of romanticized, um, but like kind of dark and, and ominous. Uh, but yeah, he paints. He grew up in a brothel in I think Argentina, and the brothel was owned by his father. And okay. so I was like, oh, that's it. Like that's the story. That's where I take. I knew I knew the skeleton I had. Um, but I hadn't put the pieces together visually and I hadn't put the pieces together in terms of what is torturing this brother, like the older brother or the brother who runs away. Like what's, what's eating his soul. Mm -hmm. And I realized like that, what would that do to your soul if you grew up in that environment yeah. and you kind of like, and you, you saw the women, the only thing you knew of women was like them as sex objects. Like what would that do to you? And in and, and what way would that mess you up? And how would that make you want to run away? And so I kind of just ran with that. Um, and, and Fabian's, yeah, Fabian's paintings are just beautiful. And so I was inspired by the, the aesthetic as well. Um, and I thought it was interesting, like he, he, he presents this very romantic portrait of, of this kind of what I think is a very dark concept. Um, like the concept of, um, growing up in a brothel to me, it just sounds awful, but he, he, it's like the way he's, his paintings are just him reflecting on that, his childhood. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't seem like he is tortured by it. It's just kind of, he almost thinks it's beautiful. And I think that's another interesting concept. Like how do you make some light out of this upbringing you were forced into? Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, so that was kind of put pieces together for me and I just started writing furiously and I was like, you know, the story kind of came together that way. Yeah. I was curious about what maybe some of your thoughts were about, you know, sex workers and whether or not they're maybe choosing to be in it versus maybe uh, having some sort of issue that's keeping them in it. And, you know, the, the idea that we've had issues that have come up on the show before about, you know, sex work be still being actual work and, 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 right. and the, the, the general morality of it versus just the choices that someone wants to make. And mm -hmm. I was curious, yeah, what your, where your sort of thoughts were after having read this script, sort of where it was coming for you. Yeah. I mean, I think I see, it's such a, I mean, it's such a complicated issue. I think it's like, I see Julius as just kind of this unbearable presence, um, kind of so, so, um, uh, he, he's, he's such a, like, he, he's such a poisonous person. Um, and I think he, he doesn't, um, he, he takes really no responsibility in his lifetime or accepts no responsibility for these things that he's put 
these two kids through. And so I, I use kind of, I use, I, I, the one thing I didn't deal with in the script, I would say very much is, yeah, whether Valerie, right, is Valerie there because she wants to be or, or not? Right. And I, I think it was something that I, with the actress that I worked with on the film, Sarah, like we never fully answered that question, but I think the, 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 the kind of messed up truth that I think we arrived at is that she in some way loves Julius and wants him to be a good person and a kind person. Um, so she kind of, Julius to her is, is she never had kind of this, um, there is again, there's again a little bit, something a little bit, um, there's a little bit of a, a not an Oedip, I guess an Oedipus complex with her and Julius a little bit. Like she never had a father figure in her life and kind of sees Julius both as a romantic partner and as kind of a, a, a father figure at the same time. Mm-hmm. And she, she wants what she wants so badly is, is kind of to fill this hole in her heart with kind of affection from, from this man. Um, because like, I think in her heart, like, I think in her mind, Julius, like the amount of attention that Julius gives her is like really means a lot to her. And so it's kind of what feeds her. And so she doesn't really know anything else. Um, and so I guess, I guess she has a choice. And I think one of the things that's key is like that Julius dies in the script. Like, I think there are certain characters, I think going into certain scripts, like I think there are certain characters that just need to die, you know, and, and, and I think the, the death shouldn't be, you know what I mean? It's not something to be relished, but it's something to be symbolic and it should be symbolic yeah. of something greater. And so I think Julius's death in some ways is a victory for, for Simon and for Valerie because Valerie can finally kind of move on and see what else life has to offer, hopefully, right? right? I think that's and, – and, and Simon can too because Simon's been poisoned in, into basically acting like his father. Um, yeah. So I don't know if that answered your question. That was a very roundabout way of going about it, but no, it's okay. Um, you 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 set up a lot of things because so much about this script is in the particulars of it, and I think that you picked a lot of you made a lot of choices as far as character goes and settings yeah. and that, that are yeah. that are extremely specific. And I think that, that in you know talking in generalities about you know sex workers or whatever that's one thing, but then mm. getting into the nitty gritty of this actual story and you you teed a lot here up and I think we're going to do a reading now from the script. We're actually going to start sounds it right good. from the beginning to sort of let the cool. the tone get set for people right so cool yeah it sounds great listeners if you are following along you can just open the script right up um we're going to start from the top jack is going to be doing voiceover for julius we've got a bit of voiceover in the beginning and i'm going to be reading all of the action headings so this is the first couple of pages sit back relax yeah. and enjoy colin just hang on okay yeah i got it i'm all good great okay yeah julius is this i mean you'll, you'll here you'll you'll get here the vibe is. here yeah Interior, brothel, front room, night. The year is 1980, a dimly lit brothel. Sounds of fornication emanate from upstairs. Julius, 40s, sits alone at a small table. He wears high-waisted trousers and a white button-down shirt with the sleeves rolled up. His hair is long and he has a thick beard. He drinks vodka, counts money slowly, and scribbles figures in a notepad. Edward Elger's cello concerto in E minor plays at low volume on a small radio. Boys, sometimes I feel like I was cursed from the start, like I was destined to do the devil's work. Valerie, 20, a beautiful, elegant, yet sad young woman walks down the stairs with a client and enters the front room. She has dark hair and wears a red dress. The client is dressed like most of the men that pass through here. Black shoes, trousers, white shirt, black tie. But the fact of the matter is, I've been a careless man. Shadows envelope the client, such that his face is invisible. He nods at Julius. Julius nods back. The man exits. My soul wasn't born tainted. 
I tainted it myself. My heart wasn't born frozen. I froze it myself. I've seen so many other cold-hearted men pass through this house. I've looked into their eyes and seen nothing. Interior, brothel, front room, night. Julius sits alone at the same small table. Across from him stands a client, a short man with dark hair and black eyes. Julius stares at the client and says nothing. The client stares back. One night, I drank too much and asked a client how he suppresses so much darkness, so many secrets. He just glared at me with his raven eyes. Interior brothel, front room, same time. Valerie walks over to the table and sits down. Julius, without looking up from his work, collects a wad of cash and slides it in her direction. She picks it up gingerly and pockets it without counting. (laughs) Men, we feel so much and say so little. We fear so much and act so brave. Valerie doesn't stand up. Instead, she looks directly at Julius. Julius avoids her gaze at first. After a moment, he looks up and into her sad eyes. They speak of longing and trust. We cry tears of blood and hurt the people around us. Julius's eyes speak of lust. Interior brothel, front room, night, weeks later. Julius sits alone at his table. He drinks, counts money slowly, and scribbles figures in a notepad. Edward Elger's cello concerto in E minor plays at low volume on a small radio. Valerie walks down the stairs alone, visibly anxious. She approaches the table and sits down. Julius, without looking up from his work, collects a wad of cash and slides it in her direction. She picks it up gingerly and pockets it without counting. Valerie doesn't stand up. Instead, she slides a positive pregnancy test across the table. But you needn't be that way, boys. Julius glances at the test, and then at Valerie, his stare colder than ever. You can live good lives. You can be good men. You have each other. Interior, brothel, front room, night, years later. A framed picture of two smiling little boys, one blonde and the other brunette, sits on a shelf. They're the same age, and they have their arms around each other. The world will reduce you to nothing, and... Demons await your downfall at every turn. Valerie picks up the picture and admires it. But as long as you have each other, you need not fear the world. Exterior, nearby woods, dawn. Your father, Julius. An unidentifiable figure carries Julius's limp body over his shoulders. The sun rises behind them. End scene. And that's how the that's how the script starts. Yeah. That was great, guys. Thank you. I appreciate it. You're hilarious. So, you know, you were just talking about how, as far as you're concerned, this character of Julius has never really taken responsibility. And except except in this moment when we're first introduced to him and Mm -hmm. he's writing this letter to his sons and he's it's a it's an apology. It's a I know I did bad, even though I wasn't I, I know I'm bad and I made myself this way and I want something better for you boys. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so I mean, right, so I think, I mean, at the end, too, like, he essentially kills himself, um, right, right, and and so I think, yeah, like, I think he does it, he he does take responsibility in kind of his own very quiet, brooding way, right, like, like him, him drunkenly writing this letter, 
I think is as much as he can really muster. And it's not going to help. It's not going to help these kids at all. Him taking responsibility at this point and in the way he's doing it isn't going to help them in any way. But this is all. This is this is as good as he gets. Yeah, right. For Julius, that's as good as it's going to get, which is uh, kind of the sad. It's kind of the sad reality of the character. Honestly, he seems like a very normal type of dude with normal internal problems. You know, he runs a brothel, but he there's not really any big indications of him mistreating people mm-hmm. throughout the story yeah. he's he's maybe conflicted he's definitely definitely conflicted about how he's treated his children and what he's exposed them to but yeah that's a you know that's probably a universal problem that people have as their kids grow up in the world sure sure yeah yeah definitely i think he he yeah right i mean he's not he's not um I think I think what he regrets at the end is is mainly and I think the the thing his main failing is basically kind of the way he chose to raise his boys that there was no kind of there was no barrier he had this kind of opportunity as a father to create a barrier between his work and and um the raising of his kids and he just didn't create that barrier mm-hmm. um and so he 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 again it's it's really about these two kids who are just kind of poisoned mm-hmm. and yeah. and and the way that they individually react to it so i mean august just can't handle it um he's a young he's because he's a young man now and and kind of can't um he can't fathom the, this this kind of um the way in which he's been completely kind of confused about 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 sex and about like who his mother is, which he really like. And, and so August, obviously August knows and figures out kind of quiet silently that Valerie is his mother. Um, and that just disturbs him more than anything because Valerie, that that's not, that's something that's no one has ever said to him. Right. Um, but, th- but it's also Valerie for a long time was kind of shaped his idea of his, his kind of, she was, she was a, a an object of sexual desire for him as a, as, as a, as an adolescent boy. Um, and so when he realizes that that same person is his mother, it's just like he can't handle it, understandably so. Why, um, why is yeah. it – why did you t- have it be – because I, I would assume that the maybe more stereotypical way to go in, in the scenario that you've built where this guy is running this brothel and this one woman that he has some kind of connection with but still works for him, uh, mm-hmm. she is pregnant with, uh, with twins of his. Mm-hmm. And yes. going the route of him – raising these boys and not letting them know who their mother is feels like it's a bit of a flip than maybe what the traditional maybe stereotypical way to go would be yeah sure yeah yeah, yeah. i mean i i think um yeah like he i i think it's just i i don't understand i knew that that was what i wanted to do i knew that's how i wanted the story to go i i don't know if i could explain why at least to me, like why Julius does that, like why he makes that choice. He seems, Um, he does seem fairly controlling. So, you know, if Valerie's kind of under his thumb and he's just used to being controlling, then he could say, well, this is the way we're going to do it. I don't want them to know. Sure. Yeah. I like that. You know, (laughs) (laughs) it's, you know, it's hypothetical, of course. I think there's also a potential there to argue that maybe he could even see it as some level of redemption, knowing what he's done up to this point in his life. Okay, here come a couple boys. Let me try to, and he doesn't do a whole lot clearly in their upbringing right. to the point where he's writing them this letter. But the idea of trying to do better, he's at least trying to communicate that to them at some point here before he's right. gone. Well, like if especially now, now we're riffing on your story, so you're gonna have to tell us if we're going too far. Yeah. But in the beginning, if he does have these babies and he sees them as redemption, he could really latch onto them, take them in not allow Valerie to kind of reveal herself as their mother. And then when he realizes that he failed, yeah. that's when he yeah. drinks too much and yeah. kills himself. Right. 
You know, totally. that's totally. a yeah, catalyst. Yeah, yeah. I, I, right. I think, I think his also Julius's kind of conception of his concept of self. And I think his conception of, I, I totally agree with what you guys are saying. I think his, his conception of what a male should be, what a man should be, I think is, I think he thinks his sons will, will just turn into kind of little versions of him. Mm-hmm. And so I think he, he doesn't expect right when they become young men which is the conflict in the story like now they can tell him you know what i mean they can tell him what's what's what and i think he he always expected in his head i'm going to film school dad (laughs) yeah (laughs) (laughs) so (laughs) i like that um so yeah so like he he i don't think he ever expected that day to come that that his sons would kind of develop minds of their own and and would kind of push back on this on this 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 life that he set up for them and so i think he doesn't really know how to handle it um because i think he just expects them to go along with with like the business as he likes to refer to it yeah uh and they don't you know what i mean they yes. they, they kind of push against it yeah so uh this idea of running away and you said that you're obsessed mm-hmm. with running away what yeah. what do you like about that? Yeah. Where's the appeal for you there? I think oh my gosh. Um I got to figure that one. That's a real deep question that I'm going to have to figure out over time like why I like that so much. I think it's um oh my gosh. I, I think I, I think it's who I think the idea to uh, part of it too the an extension of the idea is like who are you really when there's no one around? Okay. And so I think I think like when you run away into the woods like who are you? And I think like you have to, no one can help you answer that question. Like you have to, it's, it's kind of an archaic, um, idea, right. Of like, like putting yourself into a situation, forcing yourself into a situation where like no one can really help you. Like you can, you can be upset about, you know what I mean? Like you can be, you you know what I mean? If you're lost in the woods or if you kind of force yourself to just run away into the, into the thick of the woods, like it's just you and whatever like what whatever um whatever reserve of like strength that you've you've developed um you know what i mean over the course of your life and i think that too is like that's always interesting i think i think characters in that situation yes exactly Um, it makes a lot of sense for august because if he's struggling with his identity he's got this pull towards the woods and he wants to run away to the woods maybe potentially to figure out who he is Totally. Yeah. Because August has no, it, it bothers August to the, to the core that he's basically had, he feels like he's had no chance to develop his own kind of healthy um, conceptions of, of like what life should be. Um, and so he just like, he, he just, by the time he's, I mean, by the time he's this age that he is in the script, he just can't handle that. And so he needs to, like, he needs, you know what I mean? With a capital N to like, put himself in those, in those situations where it's just him and he can try to piece things together. Um, yeah. Anyway. So then uh, the flip side of that then is his brother, Simon, who is a little more of a, being a little more participatory in the family business, let's say, but even then about three quarters of the way through the script, he has just a moment where he goes off too. And, and, and he recites this whole monologue to one of the clients that's in the, that's coming to, to, to pay somebody for some sex. And he's, you know, are you married? What do you say to your wife at night? What do you think about the fact that, you know, years from now when she's dying and you're the last face she's going to see and you know you've been lying this whole time what is it what was there a, a turning point for simon as a character because he ultimately ends up leaving too and what what yeah. is there a thing that sets him does he take the cue from august that hey you know what august left i don't have to take this either 
Yeah, I think it, it's it's August. August is kind of the catalyst for Simon. I think that's that's the only answer I could really come up with with, with respect to that because it's like he doesn't Simon because August to deal with his pain up until this point has basically just kind of left and gone on off into the woods right alone and, and has not let anyone see like how much pain he's really in. And I think when when August finally takes off for good. Um, it just bothers Simon kind of Simon really does have a heart, you know what I mean? Unlike his, unlike his father. And, and, and so he, he realizes he loves his brother to death and, and there's such, there's such different people, but like he realizes how much pain his brother has been in and it, it just bothers him and it, it, it kind of tears him up inside. Um, and so he, he, he then August, I mean, Simon is a, is a savvy enough kid to kind of ask those kinds of questions of the, of the client, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like, what are you, why are you doing this? Why are you, why are you kind of perpetuate? Like, why are you, why are you lying? And why are you like, who are you? Um, cause he just really wants to know those things. And, and I think August running away basically forces him to ask all those questions. So, um, all right. Yeah. So, so then gun to your head moment between you and your brother, uh, it, it, is one of you more of a Simon is one of you more yes. of an August. I'm much more of an August and he's much more of a Simon. Okay. Uh-oh, yeah. brother stuff, yeah. brother stuff. <laughs> yeah. Brother stuff. So I don't know, I don't know if he's going to like that that I just said that, but that's true. I mean, you had the answer uh, pretty quick, so you must have felt pretty sure about it. Yeah, I did I totally feel sure about it. Yeah, I'm definitely August. That's why I love August dearly and I, I love all the characters in the script, but I, I yeah, I, I obviously like August is my my child. He's your baby. <laughs> yeah. I love that it's hard to tell exactly which character the story is about. You know, because yeah. you think it's yeah. Julius, then you think it's Valerie, and then the brothers it becomes pivotal, and it shifts. It shifts between all four of them, yeah, pretty evenly. Yeah. Well, maybe Valerie yeah, gets think, a little bit of a short stick, but yeah, a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I think that's that's the way I like to set up all the scripts that I've written so far. I try to set them up that way. Um, I th- I do believe in like protagonists. It's not that I don't. I think there's always, you know, what I mean, you have to have a protagonist, right? You can't not have a protagonist. Um, but I think like, I do like to set up my films and I try to do that with the feature script that I just finished where it's like, it is one character's movie. I, I think this movie is Simon's movie, to be honest with you. Do you? Uh, yeah. I mean, he has the arc in terms of, you know, changing and, and making decisions or whatever, but boy, I really feel like, I feel like this is Julius's movie, even though he dies early on, it's his death that, 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 that causes the change in everybody and that it, it's his effect on everybody that you're seeing. Yeah. Oh, that, okay. I just felt like I don't know what it was. I just felt like without Simon, like I, without Simon, I I don't know where the story goes. Okay. So Simon is just to me is like he, he, he. I had to lean on him really hard, and and I leaned on uh, Cody, the actor who plays Simon in the in the film, is like he. You have to. I had to lean on him really hard because it's like he is kind of um he is he is really the support beam of the film, um and, and Julius like Julius dying kind of passes the torch to Simon, right. Mm-hmm. So to speak in the script. And so I like, to me, the story would have just been a dead end if it had been just Julius's story because it's Julius dies. Then, then, and then what, but I wanted there to be hope. I wanted there to okay. be, um, I wanted there to be hope for someone like Simon too to change and kind of try to work towards a better life for him and his brother in the future. Um, yeah. So to me, it's Simon's movie, but I, I could, you know, I would, it's fair to say that maybe it's not. You well, know, no, that's the fun thing about stuff like this is that yeah, you, we just you, right. you, you created this thing and people are having different reactions to it. And you, right. you as a yeah. creator, man, totally. that's what you're going for. That's great. Totally. That is totally what I'm going for. Yeah. Uh, what was the production process like for this? You know, it's um, produced now. How, how did that all work itself out? 
So it, um, it worked itself out again on the topic of like forcing yourself into uncomfortable situations. Um, I was like, I knew that I wanted to make it so badly and I was home. It was last summer. I was home for the summer and I was like getting a, this is a weird story, but I was getting a haircut (laughs) and my hair, my hairdresser, um, is like, she, um, she does hair and makeup for a lot of music videos, actually a lot of high profile musicians. And I was like, what, um, like, how do I tap into the Boston film community? Cause you know, I, I'm, I'm during the year I'm in LA basically all year. And then I come home and I don't, I wanted to like tap into the Boston film community. And I was like, how do you do that? Like, what do I do? And she's like Craigslist. And I was like, you're, I thought she was kind of making it up. I was like, okay, I don't know if that's going to really work out. Um, but I posted on Craigslist, like, Hey, I'm looking for a director of photography. I'm looking for, uh, you know, an AD, possibly a producer, whatever. And I got a response from Ben Grant, um, who shot the film for me. Um, and he sent me his reel. Um, and he's like, you know, I'm, I'm from Massachusetts. I'm a cinematographer. Here's my reel. And his reel was just beautiful. I mean, he's, he's so, he's so savvy with, with the camera. Um, and so I was like, oh my God, yes. Like I, I want to work with you. Um, and he said, hold on, hold on. Let me read the script and, uh, don't get excited. <laughs> and, uh, I sent him, the, I sent him the script and he's like, okay, script is great. We're doing it. And, um, so I was working 40 hours a week too. Um, and so I used all the money from working literally out of pocket to pay for the film. So the film cost like 1500 bucks about, um, and it was all out of my pocket. Um, and so it was basically, I told, I told Anna, so Ben brought on Anna Remus, who she's a Harvard grad. Um, she's kind of very active in, in the Boston film community. Now she does a lot of commercial work. Um, she's a director and a writer as well. She directed a film called, uh, wise gals, um, which is, is really good. Um, and, um, what was I going to say? And so Ben brought on Anna and Anna just, it was really, I learned so much from Anna. Like she just pushed things forward. Like the, as a, as a producer should, she just like, we would get on the phone like twice a week or whatever, once a week. I don't even know, but she'd be like, okay, is this done? Okay. We need to think about this. Okay. What do we do? What are we going to do for crew? Cause I told her like, listen, I basically have like maybe $1,500 to make this movie and yeah. I want to make it in like three weeks. Like I want to be shooting within like a month or so. Um, and she was like, okay, like I could sound like I could kind of hear the hesitation in her voice, but we got it done and we got it done. Cause she was just like on the ball and, and, she like showed me what a Trello board is. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Trello, but it's like a good way of visualizing pre-production and production and post-production logistics. Um, and she just <laughs> showed me all the stuff and she brought on basically the entire crew with the exception of a few people. She's like, Oh, I know this gaffer and the gaffer knows these two grip electrics. That's so um, good. Yeah. She was awesome. So like she pushed the thing forward. Lo and behold, like a month later we're shooting. We had three days of shooting. We were shooting, seven pages a day. Wow. Uh, it was fast, it, but it was, it, it was unbelievable. Like the crew was so good and the cast was so good. And like, it was just, I literally basically like the, the long story short, I assembled this thing. It's in some sense through Craigslist and it all worked out and it just like, worked. like everyone showed up on time. We didn't have any equipment problems. Um, we got everything done. Um, and I was just super happy with the, with the end result. Um, and I had to edit it really fast because I wanted to get it into a bunch of festivals or try to. Um, but I wanted to submit meet festival deadlines. And I, I also I was leaving within a month to go back to school. Yeah, right. So like Ben so Ben also does um, color correction. So he color corrected. So I, I knew that I had to hand him the hard drive 
a week before I was going to leave to go back to LA. So I would like rushed through the editing. I didn't rush through the editing process, but I was like, I basically had three weeks uh, to edit the whole thing. And um, I, so I would get home from work and just be like furiously editing all night. I, you know, repeat. Um, and <laughs> until the film was like done. And then I handed it to Ben, Ben color corrected it. I went back to his house the day before I was going to leave to go back to LA. He handed me the hard drive. And the film was done. And you uh, cried. Uh, and you cried and your parents said, thank God. Yes. Thank God. Yeah, yeah. Like, I was just so thrilled that it was Colin, done. Colin, are you done making that movie yet? Dinner is ready. <laughs> you still making that movie? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I was just, like, super pumped. And, and uh, I was happy with the film. And, I mean, I managed – we haven't had – we didn't have – I didn't have the money to submit to every film festival – um, we did get accepted to the Boston International Film awesome. Festival. That's very cool. Which That's I, great. Which I was proud of, and and um, it was so cool to see the other films that were there. I mean, there was in my session alone, there was a film from India, there was one from South Korea, China, um, and just really skilled filmmakers from all over the world. And like it, the international, it was really international. Um, I was the only American uh, filmmaker in my group, um, and it was just so cool to to, to see that and to to, to feel like my work was like considered as good as these other films. Um, I thought that was just awesome and, and it was really exciting. So anyway. So now this is done. You're well, your school's probably done for the year now, right? Cause it's, we're, we're in summertime. What, what, what's next on your plate? What are you, what are you doing now? So I'm currently interning at Showtime Networks in uh, their office in West Hollywood. Um, and so I'm like a program operations and distribution intern for them right now. Um, in terms of personal projects, um, I've kind of, I'm, I'm really want to make the, the feature I was telling you about. I'm trying to actually make it myself. Okay. Um, so I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm in pre-production on a feature like film right now. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, yeah. So I'm hoping I can, um, I'm hoping it'll come together. It, it, it probably, should, it needs to come together because I have all the actors on board already. Um, so, so yeah, it's, it's, I'm really kind of really focused on that right now. There are so many short films I have that I want to make. Uh, there's about seven ideas I have that I would love to make. I just don't think I, I don't want to distract myself mm-hmm. um, from, from, because if you're going to make a feature film with, especially with basically no budget, um, you cannot distract yourself with other projects. I mean, you just can't. Um, so I'm, I, I've had to retrain myself because I always want to be making something. I've had to retrain myself to just focus on one thing and just focus on like this bigger kind of beast that I'm trying to tackle. Um yeah. Okay. That's back. super yeah, so, exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, if somebody wanted to get in touch with you and help you with all this pre-production on your feature, what's the best way for them to do that? So they could reach me by email at um, C-O-L-I-N-D-A-L at USC.edu. Colin Dahl at USC.edu is the email. And then um, do I put – I don't know if I want to put my phone number out there. But, yeah, email is probably the best the best way. And then you can look me up on Instagram, um, Colin Charles Dale is my Instagram handle. Um, and if you look up Colin Charles Dale on Facebook, you will find me. I have a black and white photo of me with a camera. Um, and Classic. yeah, I'm not, I'm not really on Twitter, so I'm not gonna throw anything Twitter related out there. Um, but yeah, that's it. That's, 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 that's really awesome. Really cool. Great. Cool. Yeah. Well, congratulations on all of your successes. Thank you again cool. for coming Thank on the show so and much. sharing this. Yeah, we love it. Thank yeah, you and, so much. And good luck to all your future work, man. You're on, you're on a heck Thank of a track right now. It sounds very cool. Thank you so much, guys. This was such a, this was really fun. Thank you for bringing me on. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sending us your stuff. That's uh, that's Colin Dale right there. That's awesome. Holy cow! What a, I mean, 
Kids, twenty one. He's still going to That's school, amazing. and he's he's he, he made it into the Boston International Film Festival. That's incredible. We didn't even talk about why this script is called "Not Even a Gravestone," even. And I'm not going to give it away now. Well, yeah, yeah. We, you know, we we. This is one of the few times when we don't really get into too much of the plot because there yeah, was so much to talk there's about. A lot to talk about in the writing of it, right? Which I love. I love, love, love that. So if you want to know why yeah. it's titled "Not Even a Gravestone," get online at scriptshopshow.com/slash/scripts. And you can read the episode, the episode, you can read the screenplay there. Folks, thanks so much. Uh, please follow us. Uh, he may not have much of a Twitter presence, but uh, we're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. We're on Facebook. If you look up Script Shop Show on all those platforms, you can find us individually on Twitter. Allison is at your bestie Westie. And I'm at Script Shop Jack. You can uh, be friends with us there. We'll post things. We chit chat. She'll put up baby pictures. I, I love her. I talk about going to see poorly choice decided <laughs> movies in the middle of the night. And uh, Who's living the better life here, really? I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> it's obviously it's me. quite the toss up. <laughs> Oh, I thought that you were going to say it was a tie. Uh, and folks, thanks for listening so much. Oh, thank you man. to iHeartMedia Cincinnati. We yes, get to use their facilities. Thank you so much. We really appreciate appreciate the support. Truly. Yes, all of it. From you, from you out there, from those that we have support on the show. From our writers. Thank you. Everybody. Thanks and, very much. And until next week, folks, that's a wrap. Script Shop was created by Allison West. Hosted by Allison West and Jack Crumley. Produced by Frank Steele. Thanks to iHeartMedia Cincinnati for use of their studio. Intro music, Retro Soul by bensound.com. Outro music by purple-planet.com. Special thanks to all our guests. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.